Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Hi, this is Dr. Vesna Petrunichosic for Dialogues in Dermatology. Today, we're going to be interviewing Dr. Anne Ling S. Chang, Professor of Dermatology at Stanford University School of Medicine. She is a medical dermatologist who focuses her clinical practice and research on high-risk non-melanoma skin cancers and geriatric dermatology. Welcome, Dr. Chang. The topic of our discussion is your February JAD article, a 10-year retrospective cohort study of ruxolitimid and association with non-melanoma skin cancer in polycythemia vera and myelofibrosis patients. Can you tell us what prompted you to think about this study and what was known about the subject? Thank you for your interest in our study. And at Stanford, my colleagues and I take care of skin cancer patients with a wide variety of complex medical problems. And genus kinase or JAK inhibitors, they're increasingly being used for a number of conditions. With the first clinical trials and approval for these inhibitors occurring about 10 years ago, specifically for polycythemia vera and myelofibrosis. And the package insert now says that there's risk of basal cell and squamous cell carcinoma or non-melanoma skin cancers. However, there wasn't a lot of details on the package insert for us to answer questions from patients. So that was really the genesis of our research for doing the research study. We know that polycythemia vera and myelofibrosis can increase non-melanoma skin cancer risk. So we weren't really sure what to tell our patients and we thought we would do our own systematic study. Very good. So can you please tell us what the hypothesis for this study was? Right, so our hypothesis was that JAK inhibition in polycythemia vera and myelofibrosis patients would associate with increased risk of SCC, SCCIS and BCC, even if confounders were accounted for. And how about your results? What were the key findings? So our study was a retrospective clinical database study, and it went back 10 years of patients at Stanford. And we identified a group of 564 patients with PV or MF. 188 PV or MF patients were exposed to the JAK inhibitor ruxolitinib. And these were matched to 376 non-exposed PV or MF patients. And so we used propensity score matching between the exposed and non-exposed groups. And this included covariates like age, gender, race, Charleston comorbidity index, and disease like PV or MF. So we also probed the data to see if there were differences in these groups for phototherapy history, photosensitizing drug use history, immunosuppression, radiation, or JAK2 mutation status. So basically, we're pretty exhaustive list of covariates that we looked into. After all these were accounted for, we found that ruxolitinib exposed PV or MF patients had a hazard ratio for non-melanoma skin cancer of 2.69, and the confidence interval was greater than one, less than seven. The hazard ratio for squamous cell was higher, which was 3.24, and also non-JAK2 mutated patients had an even higher risk of SCC. Their hazard ratio was 7.4. 
This is all very interesting and a little bit scary because the JAK inhibitors are becoming so popular to use in dermatology with different diseases. And it seems like it's introducing another additional set of standards that we may have to adopt when prescribing these medications. Specifically in your study, you identify a subgroup of patients on roxalitinib who may benefit from increased screening and surveillance. What about those that are on other JAK inhibitors? Because we are more familiar or have used more other JAK inhibitors systemically, preferentially. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think this is an important question that we need to do more research on. So as the other JAK inhibitors are used for more conditions, we should be on the lookout for signals that these other JAK inhibitors might increase NMSC or non-melanoma skin cancer risk and systematically study this possibility while accounting for covariates. Are you perhaps aware whether there is any data for the ones that are used in dermatology? Are these variables being recorded or is there a repository somewhere where they're being reported for patients who are, for example, on Zelgens or another JAK inhibitors where our colleagues can actually report if they're seeing patients with new or increased numbers of non-melanoma skin cancers? Yeah, it's an interesting issue because, as most of us know, the non-melanoma skin cancers, basal cell squamous cells, they're not regularly recorded like melanomas are in a national database. So individually, we have to look in our own databases to see if there's a increased risk. So I think that as time passes, there will be more data accumulated where we can look at these things in a retrospective fashion. I think you've cracked the ice on this, and now there will be increased interest and there will be more availability to make this better known and available for study. I was a little bit, when I read your study, what instantly sort of linked in my brain was that we just had a first topical JAK inhibitor cream for the treatment of atopic dermatitis approved by the FDA, and it's being prescribed routinely to varying degrees. It's probably not very easy to get that approved for ins- from insurance just yet. But for our patients with the topic of dermatitis, presumably some of them are younger. How should we counsel patients using this new treatment option as far as skin cancer screening? Your study found that the increased risk of non-melanoma skin cancer, and you can provide a more detailed explanation of that result, but that actually sun-exposed areas, it favored sun-exposed areas. So should we counsel our patients who we're prescribing topical ruxolitinib a certain way now in view of this? Yeah, that is a great question. So as dermatologists, we're well positioned to be on the lookout for possible connections like this. And over time, we should be able to see if there's NMSC signals after topical JAK inhibitor use, because the follow-up times in our individual databases would likely exceed what is reported out in clinical trials. And so again, also that the greater numbers that would be in our clinical databases would pick up smaller signals and also allow for covariate accounting. I think the situation is analogous to other immune suppressants that we typically use for atopic dermatitis, such as 
like topical tacrolimus, which when taken orally may associate with NMSC risk, such as in transplant recipients. But even topical steroids, since they're immunosuppressants, do those carry a risk of potentially increasing NMSC? So, I mean, it all, I think a lot of it depends on how long it's used for, where it's used. Oh, I think we need more studies to figure this stuff out. Yeah, I agree. I did go and check the topical ruxolitinib drug insert, and it does list caution for increased risk of NMSC. So I'm glad that we're having this conversation because it will alert our colleagues that that's something that they need to counsel patients on and do regular surveillance. So this is all really a very inspiring start of maybe something new that we haven't necessarily thought about doing before. And thank you for publishing this association because it really brings to the forefront the need for regular skin surveillance in some subgroups of our patients. Well, Dr. Chang, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Things that come to mind for me is the drug that was given to polycythemia vera and myelofibrosis patients. Obviously, those individuals have underlying issues with their immune system because of the underlying conditions. Are there any differences or similarities to conditions that we would be using this drug for? And will we be using ruxolitinib for any other conditions as a systemic medication? So recently, ruxolitinib was also approved for graft-versus-host disease. That's a small percentage of the population, of course. That's all that I know of. That doesn't mean that others won't be rolling down the pipeline, potentially, maybe even in topical form. Interesting. So another caution to have for those of us who take care of a lot of patients with graft-versus-host disease that this medication may be on their medical regimen. I've taken care of many GVHD patients in the past, and of course, because Rexolitinib was not being used for that, none of them were on it, but now I have to think about this new medication and how it comes into play with all the other sources of immune suppression that they have. Now, do you have any suspicions or ideas, or has your research led you to believe that there are any parallels to what we see in patients who undergo immunosuppression for transplants? Because they're at so much higher risk for developing non-melanoma skin cancer and Worldwide, there are specific guidelines internationally on how to monitor these patients and how to take care of them because, for example, squamous cell carcinoma is up to 60 times more common in patients who have had solid organ transplants. Um, As far as pathomechanisms and just avenues of research for you go, Have you thought about any parallel between these groups of patients? Right. So I guess some of our patients did have bone marrow transplants, but we didn't look at solid organ. I think we only had one patient that had a liver solid organ transplant in our patient cohort. So we can't directly compare with the solid organ transplant recipient group. However, the risk of ruxolitinib in PVMF patients 
the risk of an MSC in patients with PV or MF taking Bruxo was between two and three. The hazard ratio was between two and three. And that's a lot lower than patients who are their risk for an MSC from solid organ transplant. But of course, these are not technically directly comparable. And plus the organ transplant patients are probably on multiple immunosuppressants, which depending on what covariates you correct for or don't correct for would be behind that risk factor of 65 times or greater of NNFC. But I think that in our study, we looked at multiple drugs that were taken, as well as a number of other factors. And that definitely brought the hazard ratio down from what it was initially before the final analysis to what it is today, which was between two and three. I see. So if a patient develops NMSC while taking ruxolitinib for PAV or MF, does one stop the therapy or do you just monitor them and treat the non-melanoma skin cancers? Is there a standard approach to these patients as far as taking care of the non-melanoma skin cancer? Yeah, I mean, typically these were found early. And so because the patients would be seen by a dermatologist or referred to a dermatologist, the lesions were able to be treated and the patient's didn't have to discontinue Ruxo because of these non-melanoma skin cancers. So typically these patients are followed by their oncologist or hematologist. And so hopefully doing exams, they would find things early and not let NMSCs become you know, locally advanced or even metastatic. So yeah, none of the patients in our group needed discontinuation specifically of ruxolitinib, specifically for their NMSCs. Do you have any last thoughts that you can leave with our listeners? I think that since there's a question of whether topical JAK inhibitors might increase non-melanoma skin cancer risk, it would probably be wise to use sun protective clothing or seeking shade, broad spectrum sunblock um, in areas especially sun-exposed areas that we're going to be applying these topical JAK inhibitors to. And the other recommendation that was on the oral ruxolitinib package insert was the recommendation of performing periodic skin examinations. And for MF or PV patients, I think that is wise, probably about three months after initiation of this drug because the first occurrence in our database of an NMSC after Ruxo start was about 11 weeks. So probably every three months would be a reasonable, well, at least starting the screening process three months after Ruxo start would be reasonable. And then depending on what risk factors they have, the dermatologist can figure it out from there how often they need to be seen. The exact duration between exams is not clear right now. But I think a period of several months would be reasonable after starting Ruxo. Very good. Well, that, that is excellent advice, and I'm sure that it will lead to better care of our patients. I want to thank you so much for allowing me the privilege to interview you today and to thank you for your ongoing research and contributing to our field of knowledge. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. 
This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.